You are listening to Spacetime Mind. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. If you knew what was in that book, you'd turn to jelly. It's not meant for worms like you. Somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. In space! Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Space Time Mind. Back from the dead after uh, suspended animation of seven years. I'm Pete Mandick, professor of philosophy from William Patterson University, and I'm super pumped up to be joined today by my guest, Professor Bryce Hubner, who is according to the internet, distinguished associate, sorry, I screwed that up already, Dis- provost's distinguished associate professor. Did That's that accurate. Right? And yeah. it's a super weird title. Yeah, I mean, it. all these titles are so weird, but at least no, you're not being called a chair. True. I'm a piece of furniture. Um, but anyway, you're at Georgetown University. Uh, Bryce has uh, really cool set of research interests i couldn't possibly uh do them justice in a single breath of air um but he wrote the 2014 book macro cognition about distributed cognition and group agency and i presume it's a knowing nod to andy clark's microcognition. absolutely uh, awesome uh and uh bryce works on all sorts of stuff like uh things in ethics aesthetics um Welcome, Bryce Hubner, to Space Time Mind. Thanks for having me. I'm super stoked to be here for the uh, relaunch and the reawakening from the dead of this awesome podcast. Yeah, thanks for thanks for helping dig up the corpse. And uh, Always. <laughs> anyone who follows Bryce on Twitter knows that he, uh, he's a man of metal and meditation. Black coffee and many other things besides. And you used to, your handle used to be distributed cog, and now it's neuro yoga chara. And Twitter uh, super fans of Bryce's, such as myself, know that the neuro yoga chara is a, a overarching research project for you. I think a book in the works. It should be. It's been backburnered, frontburnered, and backburnered several times. But well, hopefully, even if- moving to the front. Let me just tell you, if there's ever any times where you despair about this project, uh, do it. Do it for us. The super fans, because, you know, I think I'm not alone and really looking forward to this book. Um, So even if you hate it, I'm sure we'll love it. Please write the book. And that and that's what I want to mostly talk to you about today. Uh, although, you know, if we get into stuff about horror movies or, or country music or racism or many of your other interests, that's that's totally cool. Uh, but I really want to dig in as much as possible to the new neuro yogachara stuff. And perhaps a good way to to get going on it is to start with the yogachara and then build up to the neuro part of that. So 
what what is Yogachara? So, so how about I, I run both of those in parallel, but I will start with the Yogachara. The Yogachara tradition is a group of loosely connected Buddhist philosophers who operate from the assumption that what we experience is nothing but the presentation of content. And there's a lot of complexity in spelling out exactly what that means, both their ancient as well as their contemporary commentators often try to turn them into um, something like idealists. But one of the things that I think is actually going on there, which is what leads me into this space, is that I think that part of what they're trying to say is that the way we encounter the world is always structured in a pervasive and complete way by the networks of causes and conditions that call into existence particular kinds of beings as well as their worlds. So in essence, they're trying to suggest that the same kinds of causal processes are at play in producing beings in their world. And that what is encountered at any point in time is a ramification of that history that leads to you encountering particular kinds of phenomena in particular ways with particular orientations and particular kinds of strategies for making sense of the things that show up to you. And then if we start narrowing that, which is why I wanna run these together, one of the ways of thinking about it is that the networks of constraints on both the structure and organization of the network connections in a brain and a body, as well as the constraints that are produced and sustained by the chemical messengers, uh, including neurotransmitters and hormones that shape what we're encountering at a particular point in time are always embedded in particular kinds of social material and ecological contexts. And that once you get the story about how all of those things are built up, what you start to see is that each person encounters the world through a lens that's been shaped by those constraints. And because of that, we end up in a, a point where the only thing we can really say about experience is that it's presenting content in a particular way. So I don't know if it, uh, if it registered on your side of things, but there was a freeze up in your uh, like mm. last two sentences there. Um, those were the good ones too. (laughs) Do you recall them enough to try to recapitulate them? Um, let, let me just try and put a a summary on it and that'll probably get it. Okay. Um, so the big upshot is that as embodied and ecologically situated agents, what we carry with us is a history that's encoded in the constraints on Um, neurons, the constraints on chemicals, and the constraints on ecological factors that shape what we experience at any moment in time. And what that means is that what we encounter is a world that's disclosed 
through those constraints, not something that is in some sense independently existing. It's the thing that has robust, meaningful characteristics. It's the thing that allows us to track and respond to particular regularities. But all of that reflects all of those internalized bits of history and those internalized bits of context. So that sounds super rich. And I have probably 800 questions. That's awesome. That. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that pops up is, is as you mentioned, uh, whether this is a kind of idealism. Um, you know, sometimes this stuff gets discussed in, in connection with the thesis of uh, representation only or mind only or, um, you know, and that and that makes it sound like we might be, you know, dealing with like a Barclayan idealism, subjective idealism, which, um, quite frankly, I'm allergic to. Uh, but there's other parts uh, of your description of it, at least, where it sounds more like Hillary Putnam, circa 1980s, 1990s, where the mind and the world together make up the mind and the world which is not, I mean, maybe is some kind of idealism, but it's not Barclay and subjective idealism. One of the things that the internal realism of Hillary Putnam allows you to bring in is material reality. It's okay. You could talk about hydrogen or polypeptides and, and uh, you know, even give credence to, um, the, the idea that maybe, you know, first there, there was the big bang and only later did you have minds later on, you get brains. Um, so yeah. How, how much is a, um, a realism that you might call a scientific realism licensed or okay. How much of it is just kind of dangerous, bad, uh, realism. I don't know if I have a coherent, if I've expressed a coherent question yet. Um, but you know, how do you how do you um, square what looks on the face of it, uh, some kind of uh, the mind is constructing the world with the sorts of things I, th I think you probably are attracted to, whereby look, there's these neural circuits, there's these other other sorts of biological processes in some in some straightforward sense they're real they're really there um and they're part of the picture of explaining what's going on in this process of the mind and the world together making up the mind and the world how do you yeah. how do you square what looks like this idealist impulse with what seems like a you know very much a scientifically informed or naturalistic story yeah there's a there's a bunch of threads there so let me start by saying a tiny bit about why I don't think idealism is the right way of thinking about what's going on here. Within the Yogacara tradition, one of the key aims is to realize that any distinction between mind and world is a distortion and an imposition. And I think they want, and this is something that I'm very attracted to, to suggest that 
imposing those kinds of categories is what leads us into metaphysical confusion. We go looking for the bits that are the material bits and that are different from the bits that are the mental bits. And we go looking for the mental bits and trying to figure out how they're different from the material bits. But the once you've let go of that distinction, you're now in a space where it doesn't necessarily make sense to see those as anything more than ways of picking out and designating bits of the reality that we're embedded within. I think, yeah, so just one, one more tiny thing. I think that the Yogacara philosophers are pretty ambivalent about metaphysical questions as we would think about them. Um, They think that trying to answer them is probably going to get in the way of practical engagement. And really for them, this is the yoga bit. Um, Philosophy is at bottom life craft. It's a way of calling into existence a particular kind of life and a particular way of engaging with the world. And if we're worrying in some sense about whether it's all fundamentally matter or all fundamentally mind or all fundamentally some other kind of not quite mind, not quite matter stuff, that's probably going to get in the way of the practical bits. So when I'm wearing my Yogacara hat, I'm coming at this stuff more from a perspective that centers those questions about lifecraft. And I think that when we step back and start asking questions that have a more traditionally metaphysical flavor, I think there what we have to do or what we ought to do is ask which kinds of perspectives increase our understanding and which kinds of perspectives lead us into dead ends. And I think that for now, the thing that looks like it leads into really robust understanding is thinking in terms of um, uh, neural structures and chemical signals and different ways of embodied organisms coping with their environment. And for me, I think that taking that kind of life craft perspective actually lends credence to uh, an approach that centers those kinds of scientific frameworks. So I want to uh, put a pin in a couple things to circle back for uh, later. Uh, and, and those things I want to pin are uh, number one, just meta metaphysics in general. Um, because there's an, I think it really interesting meta philosophical view in, you know, floating around here, which is very, it seems to me pragmatic. One might even say anti-philosophical, mm-hmm. but in a good way, mm-hmm. a good kind of uh, anti-philosophical. Um, uh, another thing I want to put a pin in to circle back to is uh, a question about the um, the relative merits of uh, yoga chara in nearby schools like Madhyamaka, uh, which might Madhyamaka might be more anti-metaphysical or more anti-philosophical than um, Yogacara. 
But, mm -hmm. but what, but the reason I want to pin them and, and come back to them later is I wanted to ask some specific questions about some stuff that you said very recently here. Um, so you, when you mentioned, for example, uh, how mind world distinctions are always or almost always a distortion, I wanted to ask you for what you think of as a, like a pretty killer example where, where that's somewhat uh, uncontroversial or, or um, you know, hard to, hard to dismiss where, you know, pre-theoretically or pre-practice, you might come into a situation and think like, oh yes, this is the mind side over here and the world side over there. But then you dig into it a little bit, you realize like, no, that just doesn't stand up. Like a lot of what you thought was out there, it's actually in here, but without, and you can acknowledge it without, you know, going to crazyville mm -hmm. where it's all just, you know, it's all just in my mind, man. So what would be an example of uh, where we, you, someone might think pre-theoretically they've got a handle on a mind world distinction, but then you dig into it a little bit, you start to see like, now it, it, it falls apart. Yeah. I mean, I think we need to move pretty carefully here because the story is not going to be one that has any knockdown or killer sorts of examples because the claim is that from the Yogacara perspective, we all encounter the world habitually in a way that separates our perspective from the world that we're embedded within. But I think easy examples that are pretty intuitive sort of come into mind when we start thinking ecologically and thinking about the way that we play particular roles in particular contexts. So one example that I often use in trying to get students to have a sense of this is thinking about what it takes in order for someone to walk into a room and show up as a teacher. In order for that to happen, there have to be the internal sort of cognitive orientations, but there also has to be the structure in the space. There also has to be the status relations. There also has to be the opportunity for treating a space as a classroom and for recognizing that within a classroom, one person is gonna be picked out as the leader for recognizing that there are particular features of a person that are gonna lead them to be the one who serves the function as a professor. And when you start thinking about that, you start to see that in order for the magic of directly perceiving someone as the professor to function, you need both the audience, you need the structure within the, which the magic trick is happening, and you need the person who is enacting all of the patterns that make this a classroom. And all of that together, is the thing that generates that experience of somebody being a student, somebody being a professor, but the causal structures bleed into and out of what's going on in what we typically think of as inside and what we typically think of as outside. So that's a, a sort of way into it, but I think the thought generalizes. And I think that the more we think about physiology and the way that animals are coupled in really direct ways to the structure of their environment, 
And the more we start to think about how differences in bodies often reflect differences in ecological contexts and how they end up being coupled together to reveal the kinds of features that are salient for particular organisms, we start to see that this is happening all over the place. And it's not to deny that there are some things that are happening over here and some things that are happening over there. It's just to say that they're all bundled together in really complex ways, such that being a particular kind of organism requires there being an environment that it can be embedded within and being a particular kind of environment requires having organisms that can interact with them in particular ways. And you can read that in Gibson-ish ways, but you can also extend it to a much wider range of contexts. And I think that's really where the Yogacara philosophers are trying to nudge us. That's a really nice example. And let me see if I can translate it into Pete Mandic speak and, and, and still get your recognition as it being the correct, the, the view you're trying to express. So, um, the the teacher example, uh, I'm I'm tempted to say, yeah, I, that's a great example. I think that that um, il- illustrates quite nicely that you don't simply have like the mind, you know, which would be the have a, a thought that the someone else is a teacher or the perception of a some someone else being a teacher, and then that person out there has the property of being a teacher. The, the that picture where you just have like on the inside uh, of the you know the perceiver is a belief that there's a teacher then there's the truth maker out there which is this individual who instantiates the monadic property of being a teacher um if that's what was going on that you know you Bryce Hubner have the just have the property of being a teacher or being uh, the provost distinguished associate uh professor if that was what was going on then we ought to be able to build a teacher detector Mm -hmm. and you know we could install one at the airport um and uh when they outlaw teachers maybe we will be installing these at airports if if they're at all possible um but anyways if being a teacher was just a monadic property of you then you could just wherever you were in the world step into one of these machines and the machines could just just scan your intrinsic structure and tell whether you're a teacher or not. And, you know, you, you think about that for half a second and realize that's completely absurd. And on pain of being a teacher nihilist, which seems bizarre, if there's no teachers, why are we paying you, Mandic? <laughs> um, you know, you have to say something like, yeah, being a teacher is, is just constituted by all these other things, all these other people, some of what the other people are bringing to it is their own mental states. Um, but also some of what's happening is your own mental comportment. Like you've got to get your head right. You got to get into teacher headspace. Um, and as we all know, having gone through the zoom uh, portion of the pandemic, trying to lecture to a bunch of students that have their cameras off, like really messes you up. And you realize mm-hmm. like how much you depended on them and all sorts of like subtle reactions from them that now are missing. And you have to like, fr- like build up back into teacher mode from your bootstraps. Um, so uh, yeah, does that, does that sound like I get it? 
Yeah, it, it sounds like exactly the right kind of space. Um, let, let me give you another tiny example, which will be one that's pretty familiar and it's a easy philosophy friendly example. Um, in the uh, Mahayana Sangha, a Sangha uses the example of a rope mistaken for a snake. And he says, look, you, you walk into the room and it's dimly lit and you look in the corner and you, you're pretty damn sure you see a snake. Um, it triggers fear responses, it triggers anxieties, it triggers all the sorts of things that are gonna happen when there's a dangerous snake sitting in the corner of your room. You realize that it's a rope and when you realize that it's a rope, the snake disappears. In part because by shifting the pattern of categorization and shifting the pattern of designation, all those other effects start to fall away. They might not fall away immediately, but, and they might leave traces on you, but they start to fall away. The next move, which is the one that I think gets to the core of the Yogacara idea, is that treating it as a rope is also something that carries all of that conceptual and affective and resonant baggage with it. And Asanga says, look, the claim that it's a rope is mistaken just in a way subtler way. What way? Treating all the things that are ropes as having particular kinds of categories we can use detectors for. And as we start to realize how habitual our patterns of categorization are, how they're tied up with our histories of learning and engagement with the world, with the kinds of things that other people are willing to treat as ropes, um, all of that, when we see how that's operating, we see that we're carrying that history into this context, leading us to think that there's something that has a determinate characteristic being a rope. And if we can let go of that, we can see that there's something there, of course, but calling it a rope is bringing to bear conceptualization, right. patterns of designation, and all sorts of habituation. So I think that all seems completely reasonable and I uh, uh, can assent to it. Um, but I do worry because I talk to other people about this sort of thing and they start saying stuff at me that just sounds like crazy talk. And, um, you know, one way of putting it, uh, what, what I think is would be a bad view that you could easily smuggle in here would be one whereby the so-called external world is just completely undifferentiated flux. Yep. has no independent structure whatsoever. And then by some kind of magic, we project, the we're the ones projecting the shadows onto the cave wall. But out there, it's just this blank homogenous cave wall. And that makes it completely miraculous then. Like, well, why would any of the structures be these structures and not some other structures? Or how can there be any coordination at all between us assuming there's more than one of us. Um, so that kind of just like raw, uh, constructive or projective version of idealism, I presume is a bad view. You don't want that. Um, but then how do you, how do you accept this view that like, well, the rope is an illusion also, mm -hmm. not just the snake, the rope too, 
that's as much of an illusion and a projection uh, as the snake thing. How do you bring that on without then slipping into this totalizing metaphysics of just like, yeah, know, there's just the one. Um, any advice there? Well, so I'm not sure if this is quite going to help and it, it takes, it's going to take a, a while for us to get clear on this, I think. But Vasubandhu, um, one, another one of the early Yogacara philosophers, uses a series of examples in the uh, treatise in 20 verses that are designed to show us different ways in which things can show up as more or less um, illusory and how they can be more or less constructed. The first one, which is the easy one that I think we can probably all get behind is the problem of having uh, eye disease where you get floaters in your visual field. Mm -hmm. And he says, look, you, you might be looking into a bowl of water or a mug of water and think you see a worm floating in there. And that perception is a, a projection. It's a projection because of the distortion in the eye, but there's still an eye there. There's still the cup there. There's all of those kinds of interactions and trying to figure out what's gone wrong requires understanding those kinds of causes and understanding the way that they collectively call into existence, that kind of experience. He then moves on to um, examples of uh, sleeping and dreaming. And the way that these get spelled out in the Yogacara tradition is a little bit different than the way they get spelled out in the Descartes, you could be dreaming sort of skepticism mode. Because what Vasubandhu wants us to see is that dreaming states are to some extent at least minimally embodied and they're taking input and feeding back into the way a body responds. He uses the example of uh, a wet dream um, given his kind of context and given his ethical situation. But I think we can think about these kinds of experiments where um, people are induced into particular kinds of dream spaces by misting them uh, with water while they're in REM sleep or by putting a blood pressure cuff around their ankle and inflating it um, while they're in a dream space. And what you see there is that the effects on the person's experience, what they encounter as a world are coupled at least to some extent to the structure of their body. It's not complete and there's way more construction going on there, but it's still an embodied coping state. A couple more examples, um, and then we can discuss the generalities here. Basavandu asks us to consider the difference between the way a river looks to me and the way a river looks to a preta. Here we're holding the object fixed and we're varying the kind of being that's engaged with it. A preta is a being that because of their past meanness and stinginess is habituated to engaging with the world such that everything looks inadequate and such that everything looks in some sense disgusting to them. Um, so the preta rolls up on the river and sees it as filled with 
urine and feces and vomit and all sorts of disgusting stuff, I roll up on the same river and I encounter it as a clean, pure uh, uh, river. The thought here, and there's a lot of rhetorical flourish there and a lot of ontology that gets built into it, is that different histories and different backgrounds can lead you to encounter the same object in different ways. So we can have ways of varying the object to trigger effects in the body and generate differences in how experience shows up. We can have differences in experience that engage with the objects in the world that modulate how they show up. And last, he offers the example of hell beings who experience guards who are punishing them uh, for their past deeds. And what's intriguing about this case is Vasubandhu argues that the idea of hell beings is actually conceptually unintelligible. Nonetheless, he says people who are embodied as hell beings encounter the world as though they're being tortured and as though there are these beings. Why? Because they've got such distorted and mangled understandings of the world that they fully project something that's not really there. And I think what we need is a story that can allow for that whole wide range of variations. Some of them are coupled to really particular facts about really particular aspects of a body. Some of them are coupled to the way that a mind generates an experience on the basis of weak bodily inputs. Some of them are ways of mangling and distorting our perceptions because of our past history and our habituation. And some of them are ways of just constructing stuff that's not really there. And those are gonna be things like pernicious social categories, for example, um, in our context. They show up to us as determinately and robustly real, but there ain't nothing for them to be grounded on really. And as we start thinking about those, um, thinking about things like class and caste and the way that they shape and organize cognition, we wanna think about the way that histories lead us to project particular kinds of identities um, the decisions that we've made in the past, as well as the decisions of the people who have organized and structured our world, all collectively ramify on how we orient towards the world in ways that sometimes lead us to perceive things that aren't really there, and in ways that sometimes lead us to distort and mangle our perceptions of others because we treat them as necessarily having characteristics that they probably don't actually have. Oh, these these are really helpful examples, and um, you know, part of what's I mean, I think that they're great in, in many many ways. Um, you know, so for example, just to drill down on the river, which which is a very rich example. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the river is the the way in which it features disgust. Disgust is really interesting in this context because uh, on the one hand, disgust is super salient. Oftentimes in these sorts of philosophical discussions, especially in say like the analytic philosophical tradition, we talk mm -hmm. about these really bloodless examples like, oh, I saw a blue square, <laughs> right? But like if you enter a room in uh, one side of the room, there's a blue square and on the other side of the room, there's like a, a pile of guts. <laughs> the thing that's going to be more salient for you is the thing that's disgusting. Disgust mm -hmm. is like hugely important to us. Uh, no one ever died 
because they accidentally ate a, a blue square. But a lot of the things that show up as disgusting are things that you really shouldn't eat. And it's good that you think it's disgusting. It's good for you if you're into staying alive. Um, but also when you, you know, you, you think about what disgust is, you rapidly realize that it has to be at a minimum, something that's uh, very different for different species. Mm -hmm. Um, what a fly finds, uh, eminently edible better not be something I eat and, and perhaps vice versa. Um, so what's going to be disgusting is going to be very much conditioned on what kind of animal you are, but we could easily uh, get uh, in view the way which cultural things are going to just thinking about like different um, cultures surrounding food. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of, there's lots of lots of things in Japanese cuisine that I will never, ever eat. Um because for me it's slimy and slimy is just that's bad news uh, maybe i'll eat a tomato but like uh a lot of the, you know a lot of the other things uh no way um but for someone else it, that's just you know that's breakfast that's just that's what one eats and another interesting thing about disgust is at least many of us have an experience of how you could toggle that um mm -hmm maybe through meditation or maybe through drugs, something that just seems like a, a completely ordinary situation. Like right now mm -hmm. I'm looking at, I'm looking at another human being as I, as I see you on the video monitor, but it just takes a few small changes in point of view. I see you as a fountain of blood. You're you just like layers of disgusting, slimy membranes. I can notice the bones in your face and the muscles that are, disgustingly writhing below the surface it's very easy to just see our embodiment um as disgusting uh, and so you know you couldn't make a a disgust detector a disgusting detector and, and set it up in the airport and just scan for the intrinsic property of disgustingness whatever d disgustingness is has got to be this thing that's built out of these networks that include facts about what are what are the organisms what species are, are the organisms in question what are the various cultural um contexts that these individuals are, are operating in uh and just what is the the you know just transient states of mind like can make something go from being completely non-disgusting to utterly putrid and filthy you know in, in 60 seconds flat uh, so I, I think that's a really great and, and really rich example. However, I want to go back to something you said earlier in this discussion um, about uh, like content. I forgot exactly how you put it, but that everything that we experience is strictly content. Nothing but the presentation of content. Nothing this but is the a way of, of spinning the mind only or consciousness only claim, but pulling it away from claims about mind or consciousness. Um, because, yeah, because there's, there's yeah. a way of hearing this like story uh, about disgust or the story about the teacher where you've got all sorts of things operating, not just content where you, where you, you know, one way of thinking about content is something, you know, like specifically about representational content. And that raises mm -hmm. all sorts of questions about, well, what is representational content? And when, what are you excluding when, when you say something, it, it 
is content or constituted by content? What are you leaving out? Are you leaving out facts about vehicles? Are you, are you leaving out facts about the rep, the representations themselves and focusing only on what they represent? There's a, there's a way of hearing um, the example of the teacher or the example of the river where there's all sorts of things besides content that are super important here. Um, and th there's the, the, we might say the vehicles uh, uh, that are, that are bearing the content. There's uh, the organisms uh, that are enjoying the contents or, or oriented towards the contents. So how do you square the, the, the statement about content with this view that, for example, you imagine a, a, a frothing anti-representationalist comes in and looks at these examples and says, I like all that, but I, content seems to be doing very little work here, if any at all. Yeah, lots there. So the first claim is that everything that shows up in experience is nothing but the presentation of content. That doesn't mean that that's all that there is. And okay. one of the things that I think is really important within the Yogacara tradition is that they articulate essentially three different stances that we can take towards anything that shows up. We can take a stance that presents it as the richly contentful thing that it is, um, a particular cup of coffee, um, a particular flavor, all of that kind of stuff. We can also look to the causes and conditions that are responsible for bringing into existence that kind of phenomena, that kind of content. And last, we can take a perspective that empties out the contentful projection of those presentations. And essentially there's lots of disputes about how to think about the relationship between these stances. But I think the basic story is that the first way that we encounter the world is broadly illusory because it treats everything that we encounter as meaningful, as belonging to a kind, as well-organized around those particular kinds, and as having those kinds of characteristics essentially or pretty close to essentially. When we turn to a causal story, what we start to see is that the kinds of presentations reflect numerous historical factors, and numerous contextual factors, which bring into awareness this way of partitioning and organizing the space that we're embedded within and giving it the kind of meaningful characteristics that it has. And as we become more and more embedded in that kind of story, we start to realize that those top level presentations are really nothing more and nothing less than constructions that are produced through that causal history. So we start from inside an awareness that um, everything is presentation of content and work to dismantle and break that apart and 
get it so that we see that these kinds of presentations are causally structured and contextually organized and get it so that we can encounter the world, not in terms of essential properties of any sort, not in terms of things that have fully determinate characteristics of the kind that show up in common sense or folk psychology, but as things that are built and organized by the way that we, given the kinds of beings we have become, are coping with the challenges and opportunities that the world we're embedded within affords. I so, think that's, oh, sorry. Uh, I, I can let you go. Um, I was going to tie it back to your discussed examples if you want. Um, well, let me, let me say the thing I was going to say, uh, because this is just super exciting. Maybe we could circle back to disgust if it seems um, still salient. Um, so these three, these three things, the third of which is this emptying out is super, super interesting to me personally. Uh, 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 where I'm coming from is that, um, I cut my teeth in the nineties on the kind of first order representationalism that you get from like Dretzky, you know, we're talking like 1993, Fred Dretzky, Michael Ty. Um, where you've got this view of conscious experience as representational, what it is that you experience or what it is that makes it what it's like. I mean, I hate the phrase what it's like, but it's useful in certain contexts is this first order content. And then there's this further story to tell about what content is, which is very, I think, simplistic and naive, but it goes like this. There's these properties in the world and the representations in us are essentially just detectors or states of detectors. And there's some kind of evolutionary story whereby we acquire these detectors and, and, you know, to put it so simply, no one actually believes this, even the people advocating it. I have a cow detector. And when the cow detector fires, uh, it indicates that there's a cow out there and I've, uh, you know, I've evolved to have cow detectors because my ancestors hunted cows or some shit like that. I don't know. Um, and that's really problematic because there's probably way more things that we represent than that, than you could fit into that sort of story. Maybe this works for cows. Maybe you could build a, a cow detector and maybe you could build a cow detector out of head meat. Maybe evolution built cow detectors out of head meat for us. But what about Wednesdays? Mm -hmm. Like I could think about Wednesdays, but like it's absurd to think that Wednesdays are this pre-existing property, and that there's some kind of causal mechanism whereby you could have a a Wednesday detector. Um, mm -hmm. You could say I think similar things about disgust. I still like the basic representational picture, but I think that the account of content has to be much more radical, and and perhaps. Um, what you get from say Dennett uh, or Quine isn't radical enough. Like you need to bring in Derrida or something. Um, <laughs> so I want to, I want to hear some more for, from you about um, how what sounds like a representational story differs from this like 1990s Dretzky tie representational story. And maybe emptying out is something akin to what Derrida is trying to get at with, deference where 
you, you know, the, the, the very idea of content uh, ultimately is a ladder you kick away. This this thing that's always deferred. There's really no such thing as the meaning or the content of a representation. The, the representations are just kind of always pointing towards more representations. And you could get the, that story in view and kind of see like, oh yes, that is what's going on. But it's not anything that you can map onto this mm-hmm. language of thought where you've got a bunch of predicate predicate terms embodied in your head as if they were refrigerator magnets that are moved around and each one of them is pointing to some mind independent property of the world. So anyway, to make this in the, the terms uh, or the shape of a question or a request, like what is the emptying out? What is that third um, step or third idea? Yeah. Let me try. Let me try and walk through that with some of the discussed stuff, because I think it it is a way into some of this that might be kind of helpful. So imagine you're going over to a, a friend's house to have dinner, and the friend puts down in front of you a plate full of crickets. And your first look at that is, oh my God, this is a disgusting plate full of insects. What the hell is wrong with you? Are they alive? Think, no, they're, they're probably um, fried. Okay, that's slightly less disgusting. They're slightly less disgusting. But well, I'm disgusted. Good job. You're slightly disgusted. So here's the basic thought. Sitting in that room at that table, you encounter that plate as either food or probably not food. And what's happening there, this is the key point, reflects your habituation towards which kinds of count, things count as food. It reflects whether fried insects and specifically fried crickets are things that show up as reasonable food items. And as you start thinking about differences between people in different cultural contexts. You start to see that different histories and different patterns of conditioning will give rise to a different experience at that same table where what shows up is food rather than not food. And that's the first step. When we think about a case like that, part of what it starts to do is it starts to show us that the object that we're being picking out as food, to pick it out as food, we need to be habituated in particular ways. We need to be organized in particular ways. But it's still possible to reify us in ways that allow for a story that essentially what's being done is training up the particular kinds of detectors that we have endogenously or shaping them in ways that reflect patterns of conditioning on pre-existing strategies of, for example, disgust. I think what lots of folks in classical Buddhist traditions try to do is to show us that even the kinds of things that feel like they're basic to our disgust profiles are trainable and manipulable. So if you think about 
the traditional kinds of corpse meditations um, where basically you're sitting, staring at and cultivating an immersive awareness of the decaying body in front of you. One of the things that gets discussed by um, a non-Yogacara philosopher, Buddhaghosa, um, in his discussion of corpse meditation is that you've got to be super careful in the direction that you approach the charnel ground from. Why? Because you're the kind of being who, if you get caught up in the smell of cadaverine, you're going to have a retching response. And as you do that, you're going to start to think that of necessity, you're the kind of being who can't engage in corpse meditation to reshape these practices. So you always approach the charnel ground from upwind. And when you approach it from upwind, you can accustom yourself slowly to the way that those kinds of responses are showing up, recognize that they aren't going to dominate your awareness and push through them through contemplative practices that are designed to highlight different aspects of your engagement with the object. And basically the thought is, and the reason it's relevant to this larger story, is that as you start to see that all of those internal variables can be adjusted and traded off against one another, that they can be, that um, experiences in one context can be boost, suppressed, or modulated by experiences that are happening in another context, you start to see that there's nothing really stable there either. That's not to say there's nothing there, but to say that the way that the disgust response shows up is also a story about how you are constructed. And because you're constructed, you can be constructed differently. So as we start to see that what counts as food is something that is constructed and can be constructed differently. And as we start to see that what we encounter from a first personal perspective is constructed and can be constructed differently. What we start to see is that all of that stuff typically comes together as a unity. It's the habituating of particular strategies, particular uh, habituating to particular regularities, and all of that is organizing that single unified experience, this ain't food. And as we start to see that the categorization, this ain't food, is a function of this larger process of physiological regulation, of ecological contextualism, what we start to realize is that none of it has intrinsic existence. All of it is malleable and flexible, though often a lot of it's hard to mess around with and play with the boundaries on. And to the extent that we can rest in an awareness that all of it is a function of these kinds of constructions, we can empty out the robust contents of experience. We can end up at something like a kind of process nominalism. And we can see that how things are being built and organized is always a function of processes of habituation. And that I think is the really key insight because for the Yogacara philosophers, once you've come to see how much of experience is a matter of these kinds of constructive processes, they suggest that you can use contemplative and social practices 
to habituate to things differently. And you can pull yourself into what for all intents and purposes is a different world. And you can pull the world that we inhabit into through those kinds of actions being a different kind of world. That's, that's super cool stuff. And um, there's several directions I want to go in with that. And I want to go in them simultaneously, which is impossible. So a, a hard choice will stand before us very soon. So, you know, one thing that springs to my mind in hearing that, especially the, de- the denial of intrinsicness, um, is something that I, w- I would like to hopefully uh, tie into consciousness studies because my suspicion about a lot of the shenanigans philosophers have gotten up to about the hard problem of consciousness and nearby discussions about like Mary mm-hmm. leaving the black and white room and zombies and inverted qualia. My suspicion is that so much of that really just boils down to a certain conception of experience or experiential qualities whereby they are atomic um, as, as opposed to relational. And, uh, you know, so atomic would mean something like monadic, um, but also at the bottom of some structure, there might be, they might enter into relations, but they themselves don't decompose. Uh, so atomic in that sort of sense. Uh, but mm-hmm. also uh, the lack of intrinsicness is a lack of essence. There's nothing that's mm-hmm. essential. Everything is, is contingent. So I'd like to hopefully get back to that. But the other, the other thing that springs to mind in, in, in hearing you discuss, for example, the corpse meditation, um, which, by the way, as an aside, when you first said it, how you approach, like the direction from which you approach the, the charnel yard, I first thought you were you meant something kind of metaphorical, like, but no, it's literally like you have, you got, don't be downwind. You don't want to have face full of the stink uh, when you're first starting off, right? Which is, which is really nice how practical um, that is. It really illustrates how much of this is, is pragmatic. But anyway, the other thing that, that came to my mind when you were talking about that specific, specific example and, and talking about the ways in which all the different elements of that experience can come apart, all the different ways in which we're habituated and might be rehabituated is this problem that comes up when people talk about transhumanism and, and post-humans, which is that um, we might be on the precipice of being able to you know, basically install sliders so that we could, we could reprogram our own minds uh, at at our whims. Uh, You know, I just, you know, might decide like, I don't have enough willpower. I think I want way more willpower today. I've got a bunch of meetings to go to, or I might decide I want to be super uh, ecstatically happy or, or I might, but once you have all this control, you immediately are in this position where there's no foundation, there's no footing, anything goes. This is kind of the problem that the existentialists created for themselves. If we are indeed radically free, then what, what do we do? If it could be anything, why go this way and not that way? 
And a lot of these possibilities are horrible, right? If you just take your, some random idiot and give them complete control over their mind, they're probably going to discover what science fiction authors have called wireheading. They're going to find the pleasure center and then just push the pleasure button over and over again until they're dead or worse. Um, so there's this, so, so one of the, the question I want to ask along those lines is um, if it is true that we can be torn apart and put back together again in these, this super broad space, space of possibilities, uh, what, I mean, are, are we going to just fall into an abyss of just a hellscape of bad uh, redesign? Is there any kind of guidance that we can trust that, you know, that this is going to be an improvement and not just a complete disaster? Uh, So maybe we can come back to the, to the qualia uh, hard problem thing uh, later. Um, Because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, is the, the ethical side of this. Yep. Uh, And that problem, the transhumanism or existentialist problem of, you know, if you could, if you could rebuild it all and there's no essences, there's no necessary nature that, that you have to follow, then anything goes. And, and, and aren't we in the danger of just falling into hell? Yep. So, I have much like you about a thousand ways I want to go on this point. So I'll pick one and see if we can, pick up enough of what's relevant. The Yogacara tradition, and this is gonna be super important, is not an attempt to just describe how things are. It's always a matter of life craft. And within their framework, all of this is wedded to a path of cultivation. That path of cultivation requires not just getting the right conceptual orientation, but getting rid of the kinds of affective distortions and emotional distortions that would lead us down the wrong paths. And also super critically and importantly, they're committed to the claim that what we ought to be cultivating in recognizing an awareness of the absence of self is not just a recognition of the absence of a metaphysical self, but it's selflessness in precisely the kind of ambiguity you get in that English term. It's selfless in the sense that you don't have a self, but it's selfless in the sense that you don't privilege your perspective, orientation, epistemic status, or ethical status over the perspective of others. So there's always going to be built into their practices, at least, strategies that are designed for bringing the practitioner towards the ideal of the bodhisattva, somebody who has the spontaneous wish to bring about the elimination of discomfort and disquietude for all sentient beings. And essentially what you're doing is forming yourself is you're trying to pull yourself into a recognition 
that discomfort and disquietude, wherever it shows up, is equally bad. And a way of thinking about that, I'll just do this one little, it's a, a little trick that I think helps, is that they want to suggest that all of us, in some sense, are intrinsically compassionate. What does that mean? Well, we can start with the case of ourselves. And to the extent that we recognize selves as metaphysical projections, what you do to benefit a future state of you as an embodied being is actually acting compassionately for their benefit. We also have it all over the place in the ways we relate to um, offspring, to sometimes parents, to sometimes loved ones, to sometimes close friends. And the problem, I think, from within this framework is the way that we allocate care and compassion. And the suggestion is that those patterns of allocation are actually showing something deep about how we conceptualize ourselves as having essential characteristics and how we conceptualize others, close others, as having essential characteristics. But as you let go of those essentializing tendencies, you're not just letting go of those relations. You're still going to have the desire to help and benefit them. It's just that those desires to help and benefit are going to start to expand because you start to realize that discomfort and disquietude, wherever they show up, are things that suck. And the practices of mental cultivation that are built in here are not the kinds that are gonna feed into um, hitting the pleasure button repeatedly. Um, they're the ones that are designed to break down that tendency and the ones that are designed to try and figure out how we can reallocate those resources that are getting dumped into making people be able to make themselves feel pleasant to redressing patterns of structural injustice and systematic inequality. So, um, so part of the answer to the question of, you know, what is going to, what is going to prevent us from falling into hell? The answer is something like, well, this is part of a tradition in which people are wor worried about that problem and have been putting a lot of deliberate effort into making sure that the rebuilding project is done with an eye towards improvement. Yeah. And, and through the, trial the and other error, side of, yeah. presumably have, are on the right path. Yeah. And the other side of it, which is also just as important, is that most of us, because of the way that we're habituated towards a world, probably will take those options of leading in bad directions. I think that's something that these Buddhist philosophers would care a lot about. And what they're going to suggest is that where that's happening, that reflects particular features of particular beings who are habituated to particular aspects of the world. And yeah. we're not going to shake that just by telling them that this isn't the right thing to do. The only way to shake it is by targeting the causes and conditions that produce those kinds of agents and produce those kinds of orientations towards the world. And until we do that, what's gonna happen is the world is gonna be systematically organized in ways that produce dukkha or discomfort and disquietude. 
so there's an aspect of what you're saying right now that is um is i think really really deep and really important and um i i personally still don't fully have my head wrapped around it but it's the idea that that we have to appreciate a contrast between on the one hand and i'm going to mangle your vocabulary i apologize but on the one hand there is conceptually grasping something mm. But on the other hand, there is having your habituations like reshaped, having your effective responses sculpted in a, in a particular way. And often in, in uh, you know, philosophical traditions that we might associate with Europe or English speaking philosophical traditions, there's a super focus on just conceptually understanding things. And oftentimes when you read stuff coming out of, uh, Buddhist traditions, you recognize, like you've heard this before, like there's no self. Oh, I heard that one before. And what's the big deal, right? I've read Hume. I've read the whole argument that you look inside for the self, the that which experiences, um, and all you find are the experiences. There is no self. So what's the big deal? Um, but I had I had an experience recently, and I and. Slightly embarrassed to say, I think I got this from Sam Harris. I was listening to Sam Harris talk about this this issue, um, uh, but he put it in a way that was very salient for me. It, it, which was, so on the one hand, you've got this idea that there is no self, but let's focus on the experience of self, and this is the sense of self in which we might, in a very colloquial way, talk about the the pitfalls of self consciousness, mm-hmm. like when you become hyper aware of how you look and and really uncomfortable at the thought that you might have to go give a speech in front of a room full of people that are all looking at you and what if my fly is open or or what if there's still some cream cheese on my face or something like that that kind of sense of self-consciousness um and that feeling of self-consciousness isn't just a conceptual idea it's not just a thesis that you read about or was you found an argument convincing it's something that is just really i don't know i think being saying hardwired is kind of misleading but it's really baked in uh and hard to shake um and um i don't know if this was harris's example or 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 one i'm just cooking up right now but like think of the difference between um how you feel when you look at something that isn't a living human face. So you're just looking at a book or maybe you're looking at a drawing of a smiley face or a photograph of a face versus I'm looking at you right now, or, you know, it'd be even more salient if we were literally in the same room together and, you know, think of how hard it would be to, um, for example, try to win a staring contest or, or Mm -hmm. how hard it would be to tell you like you're fired right? Just like this, this, you know, literally my blood pressure is going up literally like my heart is, my heart rate is going up. There's all these like effects that are, that, um, are my self-consciousness it's effective. It's, it's, it's not something that I was I brought to by simply understanding an argument mm-hmm. is the, the sort of thing that you know, maybe it's innate, maybe it was um, something I was trained to, maybe some combination of the two, but it's not something I'm just going to change because I read a really cool argument. 
it's mm-hmm. it's not something operating at this purely conceptual level. It's something much deeper. It's emotional. It's other things uh, besides that. I think that's like a, when thinking about these topics, that's a really important idea that I always have to keep coming back to and reminding myself that ultimately this is about experience. You don't really get it until you are, are able to experience it. And sometimes in order to experience it, you have to do a lot of intense things, meditating yeah. and, and practicing meditating for a long time to be able to, to get into this experiential or effective uh, state. It's not merely conceptual. Um, yeah. But so, so I think that's exactly right. And another aspect of the yoga of Yogacara is the internalization of those kinds of conceptual awareness. It's really trying to embody those kinds of attitudes and orientations, not just having them be things that are cold and propositional, but things that saturate your encounter with the world. And I think when we start thinking about differences in global patterns of awareness, where different kinds of state transitions bring about different kinds of encounters with the world, like psychedelic states, those aren't just ways of having particular propositions. They're ways of the whole mess showing up and the whole mess shows up all at once. And it's not that you're hallucinating a particular thing in a particular place. There's all of the affective and social and interdependent and historically weird and all of that stuff ramifies onto what an experience is at a particular point. And the suggestion is going to be that meditation to the extent that we engage in it in the way that the Yogacara philosophers want us to is a way of bringing into existence a shift in that global state of awareness such that the entirety of the world shows up in different ways. Um, So I'll just do one tiny little um, example. The last um, longish uh, meditation retreat that I did, um, I did during the pandemic, I did it at home. And it was at one of these points where things were just starting to open up. So there were people out on the street. And at the end of it, uh, I'd done a week where the very last day I uh, aimed at 666 minutes of meditation. Um, And towards the end of that, what I did was a walking meditation, but a walking I just now got, it just now clicked for me. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. (laughs) Um, So I did a walking meditation at the very end of that. And it was a walking meditation where I tried to do uh, metta, um, loving kindness to each person that I walked past, where I tried to orient towards every person that I passed on the street with the thought, may you be well, may you be happy, may your life be free from trauma. Um, And what showed up really quickly and in a super cool way was both the way that I was resistant to that and the way that the more I habituated towards it through just uh, uh, whatever it was, half hour walking meditation, 
I started to see my attitudes towards people on the street shifting. And it, there's no doubt that it was because I'd done a pretty serious week of meditating, but my mind was more flexible and pliant and my awareness of what it was to walk around in a social space just started to feel very, very different. And I think that's the kind of thing that the Yogacara philosophers want us to see. And they want us to recognize that we can really embody radically different ways of orienting towards our world. That's a, that's a great example. Uh, and this might be a good time for me to, to launch the, a question about meditation. Um, because I meditate. I've been a meditator for a long time. Um, but I do wonder, what's the big deal about meditation? Why meditation? If the goal is moral retraining, you know, I mean, maybe you could do it with moral retraining without meditation. There's at least some parts of human life in which that's exactly what happens. You, yeah. right, boot camp in, in the military is a kind of moral retraining. And uh, even though there are military personnel using meditation techniques, there's lots of boot camp that isn't at all about meditation. Um, mm -hmm. uh, lots of the education system is about training people, uh, but not necessarily through the technique of meditation. So I'm very, this is a huge question. Maybe no one knows the answer to it, but like, why meditation? Mm -hmm. And by the way, what is it? Why does it work for, the, for this? It seems yeah. very mysterious that, for example, paying attention, even though I agree that paying attention to one's own mind has significant effects, it's actually quite surprising unless you try it. Like why, why does, why would that work? Why would paying attention to your mind lead to anything at all? Um, yep. So, so why, why meditation? Uh, what is it such that it has these uh, positive uh, effects? Any, got any wisdom there? I have a lot of thoughts and they're going to get pretty complicated pretty quickly. I think that a big part of what meditation is doing is shifting to the extent that you really take it seriously and do a lot of it. The flows of chemical signals through bodies and brains. And I mentioned that because if we think about how changes in global awareness unfold in the context of psychedelic experience, essentially you use a substance to throw you into a flexible and pliant state and weird stuff happens. The cool thing about meditation, and this is why I think it's a different kind of thing than psychedelic experience, is you start to see that you can drive some of those kinds of effects through endogenous or self-cultivated activities. And you start to see that the flexibility and pliability of awareness is something that is to a degree under your control. I think we wanna be super careful there because there's a lot of it that's uncontrolled. There's a lot of it that reflects patterns of habituation and even getting there is something that requires repeated nudgings 
Um, it's not something that is just going to happen when you sit down and meditate. It's something that as you ac accumulate that kind of practice over time, you start to get shifts and those shifts start to show the world differently. And I think that the reason why I think meditation is an important aspect of these kinds of cultivation practices, it doesn't exhaust them, but it's an important aspect of it, is that it generates that kind of awareness of how much control you have, as well as how limited your control actually is. And as you start to get a sense of where you can exert effort to change things and where other kinds of constraints and social histories are really in the driver's seat, you start to see where you need to exert other kinds of effort to change and transform the structure of your world. So I think one thing that's worth remembering, this is another non-Yogacara reference. Um, it's a reference to Buddhaghosa, but where Buddhaghosa is talking about the challenges that show up when you're trying to direct immersive loving kindness towards an enemy. Um, he offers a bunch of different strategies and he's like, if you can't get through it, start thinking about these things from the tradition, start trying these kinds of practices. And he gets to the end and says, if you're still struggling, get up off of your meditation cushion and give the person a gift. And the reason there is that that kind of practice is in some cases, the kind of things that you need to dislodge particular kinds of habituated assumptions. And as you engage in that practice, part of what happens is the practice shifts your orientation towards the world. And I think that this is something you see throughout Buddhist traditions. It's not ever a story just about individual practice and cultivation. It's always a story about cultivation that's embedded within life practices, life practices that include um, things that we'd probably call morality, things that we'd probably call generosity and behavior, things that are really tied up with shifting your patterns of behavior. And I think that's really important because it gets easy to think that what meditation is, is something that's self-directed and mind internal, but it's more, I think, an attempt to get your mind into the space where you can start to engage in practices that start to shift your awareness. So there are always gonna be complex um, looping effects as Evan Thompson has put it, between what you're doing in the meditative context in a particular situation with particular kinds of expectations and what happens as you start to move about the structure of your world. And all of that stuff has to be operating together because otherwise you end up with a really, um, for lack of a better term, heady uh, picture of what's going on in meditation. And that shouldn't be the story. It should always be about practical engagement. So there's a problem I wanna raise that um, doesn't originate with me. It's something I don't recall the source, but it was somewhere on Twitter, someone was discussing this problem um, for meditation in general or about understanding what meditation is. Yep. And the problem goes something like this. If you look at 
other kinds of self-improvement activities that humans engage in, like for example, dieting to lose weight Um, or, you know, doing pushups to get giant pectoral muscles. There's in those cases, there's a story that can be told about what, what has happened in nature, what has happened in our evolutionary past, whereby we can see, for example, like, well, you know, in, in the case of weight loss and dieting, we can see that like, okay, food, that's the thing that creatures like us need. We also need mm-hmm. a way of storing for, you know, yeah. storing things in fat, fatty cells for use by the organism later. And we can also see why the various mechanisms uh, in play there might go out of whack. If you, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you don't have a lot of time and money, you find yourself eating a lot of McDonald's and then now you've got a lot of extra weight that really you, you don't need that much extra weight. You know, mm-hmm. It's not like you're getting ready to go hike across the tundra anytime soon. Um, so there's always some kind of story there that can be told about like, well, what's the, what is the privation? What is the system that is, uh, what is its, its, you know, telos? And what are the ways it, it can get out of whack? There's always something that is missing, something that could be restored. But then you look at meditation and it's really hard to, to align it mm-hmm. with these other examples of, of self-improvement. Like what is, like what, what's wrong with the way people's minds operate already? What, what is meditation restoring or you know yeah. from a naturalistic pr- perspective what is it what is it what, what are you getting back to and isn't it just such a yeah. weird thing that we could we could do this like it, so this is rambling i uh, i know but like the fact that we can meditate and that meditate meditation has these positive effects is this just some weird side effect of having prefrontal cortex or is it some, somehow tell us something deep about our, our telos as the mammals? Yeah. Or something else besides. So, so I, I think one thing that is probably super relevant, and this ties back to the claim that at least as I read this tradition, meditation is always about larger practical activity is that how we organize and structure spaces of action and spaces of engagement with others often reflects deeply internalized patterns of, to put it in Buddhist terms, attraction, aversion, and confusion about what the world is really like. When we think about for example, some of these practices that you just mentioned, one of the things that we can always step back and ask about is whether our tendency to see them as improvements is something that is packing in particular kinds of habituated attractions and aversions and whether we're confused in some deep sense about whether these really are improvements or whether they're just other ways of acting and being. And I think one way of thinking about what meditation is doing is, and this is not going to be a universal story by any stretch of the imagination, 
But if you think about an analogy that runs through the polycanon all over the place of a bowl of water where different kinds of affective responses cause different kinds of distortions in the bowl of water so that you can't use it to reflect what's actually present in the room. Um, anger, for example, causes the water to boil such that when you look into it, all you see is the distortions that are generated by the bubbling water. Um, and you might not even see anything reflected at all. But if you can get the water to reach a state of quietude, what it will do is reflect the world that it's embedded within. And there's a key thing to notice there. Reflecting the world like a mirror is not projecting things as being fine when they're not. It's not imposing a sense that the world is a tran tranquil place. In fact, if you wanna see the patterns of messed up phenomena in the world, if you wanna understand what's causing joys to arise and what's causing patterns of discomfort and disquietude, if you wanna see patterns of structural injustice, what you need is to quiet down your own patterns of attraction, aversion, and confusion so that you can actually orient to the world in ways that show those structures that are present. And I think that to answer the question about why we have that capacity, I think a lot of it is tied up with the fact that our capacities to organize and structure environments in relation to our patterns of conceptualization is the thing that also allows us to deconstruct those patterns of awareness so that we're not deploying those patterns of conceptualization. And what makes that possible is a complex history about how niche construction functions across different kinds of species and how it's come to organize and structure all our engagements with the ecology of built material spaces, as well as the ecology of the land that we're living upon. Is there, so, I mean, that's very rich and there's a lot of things that I want to ask about that, but to try to um, stay on the, the question of, you know, why do we do this or what, where does it come from? How can it be? Um, so one way into that, back into that question would be to ask if there are um, non-human animal models of, of meditation, mm -hmm. is there anything that resembles meditation in animals there's certain aspects of meditation you might be able to say that non-humans do so for example there's a metacognitive component and there's literatures about non-human models of of metacognition or you know um stuff about it, attention and orienting or maybe for social animals certain kind of soothing social soothing that's done uh mm -hmm. and maybe there's some kind of you know dennett story about the virtual wire uh uh, it's kind of like his Julian Jane's uh, origin mm -hmm. of consciousness stuff where we have this capacity as social animals to talk to each other and call out for help. And somebody, some in our distant past called out when there was no one else around to hear, but they heard the call and that had an effect. And it was as if there was a, a virtual wire um, connecting previously unconnected parts of the cognitive system. So is there any kind of origin story that can be told about you know, like how 
did we come to be animals that could meditate? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess one thing that I would say is that probably we don't have the right kinds of knowledge from ethology of what other kinds of critters do. Um, if I had to take bets about whether any other critters are capable of this, my bet is probably critters like elephants. And part of the reason for that is that they've got complex spaces of vocalization, uh, complex spaces of categorization. They're capable of, for example, tracking patterns of clothing that are associated with particular groups and using those as signals to determine how they're gonna act with, interact with those peoples. They're capable of tracking different patterns of scent that are associated with different groups and using that information to regulate how they engage. And they're capable of engaging in long range communication to recruit others for help. And I think that when we start thinking about those capacities, what we start to see is that there will be habituations towards particular patterns of designation and conceptualization which can impose distortions on awareness because they generalize beyond the contexts where they're in any way useful. And they also impose patterns of behavior that might lead to more trauma and more discomfort. And I think that one of the things that's really interesting within the Buddhist traditions is that humans are seen as occupying a semi-unique space because things are bad enough for us that we don't just get caught up in the pursuit of our own pleasures. In that respect, we're unlike devas. Um, we have enough pleasures structuring our world that we're not constantly dealing with and managing pains um, like the hell beings are. And we've also got enough capacities for reflective awareness that we can start to think through whether our strategies for interacting with the world and for designating things in particular ways are generating distortions. And being in that situation, I think is what's probably necessary to make this a worthwhile and useful practice. Whether there are other critters that can do that, I think that's a really open empirical question. I wouldn't be surprised if there are lots of non-human primates who have variants of some of these capacities. Which ones they have and what they can do with them, I think that's a much harder question. Um, and really, I guess last bit there, until we have a neurobiology of what meditation is, I don't think it's even a question we know how to ask or answer outside of human context. That's almost always the answer to these sorts of questions, isn't it? We just, we're, we're nowhere near knowing. Um, so we're at a point where I think it would make sense to take a break. 
think we're back. Are we back? We are back. Oh, feels good to be back. Well, let me uh, use the occasion of talking about non-humans to talk about some more non-humans, impress you about biopsychism. I've uh, I've heard uh, in a couple different fora you express sympathy for biopsychism and maybe for different reasons I might be myself a biopsychic. Um, so um, and maybe this will get us into more broadly stuff about metaphysics of mind and and hard problem of consciousness type stuff. Um, so uh, is it true? Are you a biopsychic? Right. Or- is that the right word? Biopsychist? Biopsychist, I guess. I, I have pretty robust sympathies towards it. And this is definitely going to lead us down the qualia hole, I think, too, um, as we get there. But part, part of the reason that I've got biopsychist inklings is tied up with my thinking that the whole qualia framing is exactly the wrong way to think about questions. When I think about what kind of thing, awareness of a world and what kind of thing conscious experience is probably likely to be, I tend to think of it as something that is alerting an animal to, or an organism, to the challenges and opportunities that are available in the environment and alerting the animal to the challenges and opportunities that are currently unfolding internal to their physiology. That means the most primitive kinds of awareness states are gonna be things like hunger and thirst um, and really rudimentary forms of that, I think. Um, the need to seek out um, sources of food, the need to avoid particular kinds of toxins. And as we start thinking about how those kinds of capacities are supported, they're supported across diverse species by different kinds of chemical signaling systems, which alert organisms to the salience of particular demands in particular contexts. And as animals get more and more complicated or as organisms get more and more complicated, you get conflicts between demand states. You get demand states unfolding in contexts where there are opportunities to be explored and they start to get layered in ways that can allow particular demands to boost one another's salience they get layered in ways that allow certain kinds of demand states to override other kinds of demands or opportunities. And those relations of prioritization end up being a second level structure on top of the demand states. So as you get the expansion of diverse demand states, you also get prioritization strategies And then those can get layered on on top of them again with further capacities for designating strategies for navigating particular kinds of demands over longer timescales. And each of these is ways of complexifying the nature and structure of conscious experience 
But right from the very beginning where we get those kinds of demand states showing up and we get them regulating ongoing behavior in ways that are alerting a being to the challenges and opportunities in their current ecological space, I think that's where we ought to think experience comes onto the stage. So I'm actually very sympathetic to this and um, I I come into it in a different way, but maybe (laughs) you and I still uh, live in the same space. Let me run this by you and see if this seems agreeable to you. Uh, So in the early 2000s, I got really interested in this question um, that I framed for myself as the question of a psychogenesis, which has an established meaning that's different from what I want to do with the word, but I, I was playing off of the project in theoretical bi- biology of explaining abiogenesis. How did living yeah. systems arise out of non-living matter? And, and so there's this parallel question of like, well, where did minds come from? If you accept this general kind of evolutionary story, um, did minds hit the scene when life hit the scene? was their life first and then minds later either way what are the what are the conditions under which mindedness would show up and for independent reasons i was attracted to a general representational theory of mind anyway so the way i would think about this is in terms of kind of what was in the milieu of my graduate school experience hanging out with like andy clark and thinking through the representation versus anti-representation debates. And there's this phrase, uh, representation hungry problems. Andy Clark is really a representationalist, but takes anti-representationalism very seriously. And uh, so I was wondering about like, what is there a way of, of trying to find the earliest and simplest systems whereby it makes sense to apply something like a representational theory of mind and what I was led to is to look at things like chemotaxis. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you look at, for example, the chemotactic problem that needs to be solved by relatively simple organism, like the C. elegans worm, or even simpler organisms like an E. coli bacterium, there's a really interesting problem that they have to solve in doing their chemotaxis, navigating up a, a chemical gradient. Um, we, if we were building a robot that was doing a similar sort of task, one way that we might try to build a robot is to make like a two sensor Breitenberg vehicle type thing where you've got one sensor on the right side and the other sensor on the left side. And there could be some kind of mechanism that compares the activities of the sensors. Each sensor is essentially a point measuring a scalar in its position in the gradient. And then based on the difference between the two sensors activations, you've got now information about the direction in which the gradient rises. But for C. elegans, or uh, especially for E. coli bacterium, they do have multiple sensors, but the sensors are not far apart enough on their bodies for there to be any difference in the activity. So what they have to do to solve this problem of at any given moment in time, they only have a single scalar of, of the local gradient. They have to somehow take advantage of the fact that they're moving through the gradient. And they has to, there has to be some kind of memory 
uh, whereby the past activations of the of of the sensor and uh, current activations of the sensor can both somehow have a causal effect on the behavior of the organism. But this, to me, looks like a very representation hungry problem. And you can put yourself in the point of view of someone having to solve essentially the same problem. Like, say, if you're in a rowboat and you're trying to navigate out of a fog, you can't tell right now, like, what part of the fog you're in. Is it is it foggier? Is it less foggy than it was before? Unless you had a memory and you could compare your current perception to your memory of what it looked like a little while ago, now you are uh, able to solve the problem of navigating your way out of the fog. And it turns out this is how E. coli you could experimentally demonstrate that E. coli has to have some kind of memory store. So I think you could break down, you could do like an analysis of the different, in the case of the C. elegans worm, different parts of the nervous system carrying information or constituting a representation of certain environmental qualities, other things downstream that are using that as representations to perform a computation that ultimately drives behavior. And now if someone asks, what does this have to do with consciousness? Because that's just strictly representation talk. How do you map that into consciousness talk? What I would say is that, well, there are ways of talking about consciousness that have nothing to do with what it's like and qualia and all that, uh, frankly, horseshit. There are ways of talking about consciousness whereby you're conscious of something. Uh, in some cases, the, the, the something that you're conscious of is a state of the environment. In other cases, what you're conscious of is a state of yourself. Um, those ways of talking about consciousness map pretty straightforwardly into this third-person accessible representation kind of, of uh, way of parsing the system. And so if E. coli have this, single-cell organisms have this, then you can find this sort of thing all up and down um, the biological spectrum. So that'd be my way into it. Does that sound agreeable to you? Any, any problems with that? And I should warn you that I've got a trap. <laughs> so choose carefully. <laughs> I can yeah. answer that question. Cause I got a spring I mean, trap. I'm at these days, at least ambivalent about broad scale representational claims. I think that it's absolutely likely that there are some kinds of processes in human minds that are exploiting representational strategies. And I think there are ways of thinking about analog computations of the sort that Corey Malley has been talking about that can help us to think about some kinds of neural processes. But I think that in loads and loads of cases, it's actually preferable to talk in terms of relatively direct responses to demand states. And part of what I think is happening there is that it's sensitivities 
of one part of a system to another part of the system that it's embedded within. And when we think in terms of a signal like a hunger demand, or I mean, way more primitively, um, the necessity for ingesting salt, I think part of what's happening there is that the structure and organization of ongoing behavior needs to be pulled out of a space that it was previously in and reoriented towards a particular kind of challenge, which is getting access to sodium. And where that happens, the shifting of where you're directed is precisely what we're talking about when we're talking about awareness. It doesn't need to be anything that's drawing on those kinds of representational capacities. Sometimes it might, but when we think about what's going on as a single-celled organism shifts its behavior from uh, pursuing one trajectory to avoiding it, part of what's happening is that a particular kind of stimuli has become salient. Either it's satiation, a satiation signal or it's a toxin signal. And both of those need to be able to recruit enough of a global awareness of the situation to change the orientation and direction of the organism. And I think that when we start thinking in those terms, it gives us a way of thinking about a lot of these questions without drawing on representational frameworks. And then we can ask, which I think is always a question that's worth asking, is a representational strategy being employed to drive this kind of response or is it a different kind of physiological response? Uh, so the representationalist is gonna try to interpret, for example, talk of signaling as an example of representations. There's a signal, what's it a signal of? If it's a signal uh, that, you know, there's sodium in the environment or, or salt in the water, um, w wouldn't that count as something like a representation of sodium or a representation like sodium here now is its content. It's the content of the representation. So, so I think it's probably always possible to offer a representational gloss on what's going on. I think the question is always going to be whether that's a productive way of exploring it or whether that's just layering another layer of our internalized biases for making sense of it. And in a lot of cases where, for example, um, an organism has a um, drop in the levels of potassium in their body, that triggers relatively directly in some systems a search for potassium. And it's not necessarily because there's something that conveys the information that there's diminished potassium. It's that that diminishment of potassium, where that happens, 
the response comes to be. And it's really pretty directly causal. And offering the representational gloss is just adding another layer onto the story that I don't think actually helps. So I wonder then um, what justifies the laying the awareness terminology on there then? Because what I, I was trying to give you a foothold uh, yeah. to answer the what does this have to do with awareness? But I don't want to be like some wackadoodle Chalmersian who's who's imagining like zombie world. Uh, I, I think that brings in like just the wrong way of thinking about consciousness. But then if, yeah. if this is going to relate to consciousness or awareness, what according to you is the right way? And if it's not going to be what I'm calling this kind of representational way of parsing awareness talk then what is it what makes this awareness i think there's a bit of the story according to which this is probably going to make you unhappy but we're going to go there um that the feeling of being alive is just a pretty basic thing to all organisms and that what gives that texture such that we get different forms of experience is the way that different challenges and different opportunities shift that background state. I think that at least part of what's really interesting about the mind-life continuity hypothesis is the way that it ties up the capacity for self-regulation and anticipatory self-regulation with basically what it means to be a living thing and what it means to be an aware thing. And I don't think there's anything special consciousness there. I just think that if you're the kind of organism for whom it matters, that you act in ways that sustain the navigation of challenges and opportunities in the service of preserving vitality, then you're gonna be the kind of thing for whom there's a really basic awareness of what's going on here now, which can be modulated by different kinds of challenges and opportunities. There's a bunch of things I wanna say about that. Um, One of them is, uh, an awareness of being here now, and this is not an argument, I'm just repeating myself, essentially. That sounds to me like a representation. It's a representation uh, that I'm here now. But another uh, another thing I want to say is, uh, if you look at feelings in general, and, and you take this so-called feeling of being alive, with many, many, perhaps all cases, the way the feeling happens is there has to be some kind of contrast um, so, you know, for example, I mean, f- talking about vision in connection with feeling is maybe a little off, but I'll do it anyway. A lot of the way vision operates is there has to be some kind of contrast signal. You don't see anything as black unless mm-hmm. there's something lighter than it also in view. And then you've got this contrast, um, and, and perhaps all sorts of sensory experience depends on a similar sort of contrasting 
uh, phenomenon. In the case of uh, being being alive, um, well, if you're if the, there's no contrast, mm. if you're dead, <laughs> game over, man. Um, so all living creatures are alive. What's it? So, so I, why I would think, you need an, a, an alive detector? Yeah. Just fucking stay alive, dude. <laughs> if you're well, dead, you blew it. So you don't need a detector. Um, but what you need is that for at least all mobile organisms, the awareness that's happening there is never static. It's a constantly changing dynamic unfolding of different kinds of demand states, different kinds of opportunities, and different strategies for staying alive. And I think that one of the things that makes the representational loss look seductive is that we freeze the organism at a particular point and ask whether it's got an experience of being here now. But I think that's probably always, or almost always the wrong way of framing things. It's the exchange of internal uh, regulatory demands and external activity and the way that that's constantly leading to shifts in what's happening over here and what's happening over there and what's happening that's necessary to sustain viability in this particular ecological context. And that's giving you something that's more like a flow of activity. And because that flow is constantly changing, it's the differences between one moment of awareness and the next moment of awareness that drives the sense that there is something going on. And maybe, I, I don't know if this is right or not, when high level meditators talk about Naroda experiences, cessation experiences, part of what's happening there is you've imposed so much stability across those unfoldings that you're getting such a minimal pattern of differentiation that no pattern of awareness actually shows up. And that's something that's cool if you can pull it off, but I think it's exactly the point that you're directing us towards. And it's something that shows that for most of us, even when we're engaged in meditative practices, we're not hitting a point where experience ceases. And it's because there's a constant exchange of different needs, different demands, different expectations, different um, patterns of unfolding thoughts, patterns of visual encounters, et cetera. I must say I'm I, still pretty uh, skeptical that there is such a thing as feeling the feeling of being alive. And if there were such a feeling that it would be basic and universal. So it, at least with humans, one clear case in which a feeling of being alive shows up is in, in cases in which it, it goes away. So f- for example, certain kinds of delusions, w- which is the one where you, you think you're dead. Is that Cotards? Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I get my. I can't keep my delusions straight. So no, it's that a, one. Cotards delusion 
and this is self-directed, right? Where you feel of yourself that you're not alive. And I think there's a lot of theories out there about what is going on in that case. Yeah. Um, so there's at least one sense of, of being alive, of the feeling of, of a feeling of being alive. They could go away. Like, so for that, per- someone undergoing Kotar's delusion, you could, they're still alive. And and probably experiencing a flux and and I mean what one of the many one of the things that's puzzling about these sorts of delusions is that you would think it would just follow they could conclude yeah. that they're alive like hey did you notice your breathing yeah I noticed I'm breathing uh, aren't breathing people alive well, yeah usually but I'm not so alive I, I I think it's really important not to think of what I'm pointing to as something conceptual. Um, as something that you necessarily need to be aware of. Like, I don't think that most beings who have these kinds of ongoing experiences are recognizing them as experiences of being alive. I think instead, it's just the ongoing rumble of, I, I mean, we can maybe put it in that those terms instead, if that's helpful, it's the ongoing rumble of patterns of differentiation and the ongoing rumble against which differences pop out. And the basic thought there, I think, is that unless there were a background rumble that could make different demands salient and make different opportunities salient, there wouldn't be any way to register those demands or those opportunities. So it's, I mean, it's basically nothing more and nothing less than physiological regulation and physiological regulation that is designed to keep a body within the boundaries of its viability and where it starts to drift away from that Things are going to signal to pull it back in um, where it's got opportunities to improve its situation. It's going to be pulled towards that. And those pullings and pushings, I think, are the boundaries around where experience goes, but the structure of experience is the ongoing physiological regulation. And I think that unless we take a story like that, we start to drift into spaces where um, it seems to me consciousness starts looking way more mysterious than it ought to. Um, I'm still, I'm mystified. I think you're the one introducing mystery if mm-hmm. I'm going to be put it in a combative way. So here, here's something that seems coherent, coherently conceivable to me. So there could be a, a there could be a creature that has all sorts of different experiences. The experiences are, are, are changing but none of the experiences is the experience of being alive. Yep. I agree um, with that. I thought you were, you were saying that it was a universal feature of all uh, living things that they have this experience of being alive. And, and further, this is your foothold into biopsychism. Uh, that the reason you're a biopsychist is because there is this, fundamental or basic experience of livingness um and I, i'm very yeah I'm, I'm pretty happy with biopsychism but that particular claim i think 
I first heard this claim from Evan Thompson, and I wonder if you're getting it from Evan also, the claim that this is part of anyone's phenomenology, let yeah. alone everybody's phenomenology, I'm very skeptical about. So, so I think Evan and I come at this from a different, different directions. And though there's a lot that we are going to share in common. For him, biological autonomy in some sense, has to be the core of the story. And it's the self-disclosing nature of autonomous activity that generates the basis of experience for him. For me, there's not a pre-existing self. And this is why I, I don't care if we call it the feeling of being alive. What I want is the background rumble of activity. It's all of the ways in which demand states are saturating the ongoing awareness of an organism. And I think that one of the things we see in the case of complex organisms like us is that there are loads and loads of different demand states which are constantly shaping and organizing the way we encounter a world. I think we can see lots of patterns of similarities and differences as we start looking at different kinds of animals. And my way of getting back here is that as we start to strip off different complexities, we eventually end up at the space where you've got organisms that have very few opportunities and possibilities. They don't need to be tracking or responding to many different ones. Nonetheless, they've still gotta be aware enough to be able to track where the opportunities and where the possibilities are and to track where the threats and the dangers are to their survival. And that's what I'm trying to hold on to as we sort of push back to the point where we've stripped things off. Um, it's not something that I take to be intrinsic to living things, but I think that it's something that we find or we're, we're likely to find across all living things. I, uh, I'm sorry to be a dogmatic representationalist, but that all seems perfectly fine to me. Uh, but I, I also want to say that's a kind of representation that yeah. the tracking, um, the, the tracking story is going to be one in which there's distances that have to be traversed. The, 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 even in a single cell case, there's things yeah. happening in the cell that have to be responsive to stuff that is many membranes away. It, it, it can't be directly responding to what's going on on the outside of the cell wall. There has to be something signaling it. And to me, yeah. that seems like enough of, I think it was Hoagland, John Hoagland that, that coined the, the detachment thesis that you've got to have some kind of way. There's, there's got to be some kind of possibility of disconnecting what's represented from what's doing the representing. Otherwise, there's just yep. no room for, for the representation talk. Uh, and I think it's actually somewhat easy to satisfy the, the demand for disconnection, even yep. in a single cell E. coli, there's vast distances, lots of links in a causal chain 
where things can come apart and you, and you have to tell some kind of uh, yeah. representation story. But let me shift gears slightly and tell you about the trap that I concocted for you, which uh, you probably saw that the trap was lined with robots. Mm-hmm. So uh, where previously I was giving you a hard time about whether all uh, living things have uh, have this, where this is experience or mindedness. Uh, now I want to give you a hard time about what I guess would be the uh, the claim that only living yep. things. And Richard Brown gave you a hard time about this when you were on his Consciousness Live podcast. Yep. So I'm 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 here I'm here to uh, give you a hard time about Roombas. Um, so lots of lots of what you think might matter for living organisms, you could have in things that at least in some sense, aren't living organisms. Yeah. So the at least in some sense is, I think, always where the problems creep in. And I think that's, this is where I stand on a lot of the representation stuff too, because all of this feels like, to go back to stuff we talked about much earlier, ways of using concepts in ways that are more restricted or more open-ended and where we're playing around with what Sellers famously calls uh, accordion words that make philosophical music by their expansion and contraction. I think (laughs) that there's very little way of knowing exactly where to stand on a lot of these issues. And it's just gonna be a question about how we want to collectively use these concepts and whether using them in that way is opening up productive research possibilities or whether it's just doubling down on ways of talking. And I don't have a lot to say about that. But in the context... Wait, just of, real quick. Let me, let me just say, yeah. I completely agree with what you just said. I think that's a really great meta philosophy. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to say from my perspective, that the kind of material that a being is made out of matters one lick to whether it's an experiencing thing. I think that for me, the thing that matters in a really important way is that an organism is striving to to persist and to maintain viability, that it is managing different demands and opportunities and that how things go with its strategies for managing those demands and opportunities has ramifications for whether it's going to continue to persist. And I think one of the things that is interesting about the Roomba type cases is that it could be possible, and we could do this if we really wanted to, to build Roombas that really care about those things. Um, I don't think that's really a good strategy from where we sit most of the time. Um, And really what we want is something that's got fixed boundaries around when its charge hits a particular level, it returns to its charging station. Um, I I was thinking this morning, because I had a feeling that you'd probably ask me about something like this, about that, um, I don't think I mentioned this when Richard asked about this, but the, that Ex Machina um, movie, 
I think missed a really cool opportunity, um, which is it could have highlighted the fact that when the um, robot leaves the bunker, um, that she had to think about where she was gonna get her next charge. And she could have thought about what it would take to make sure she was gonna be able to have access to charging stations. I think if that little tweak had been added into the film, I would have been much more convinced that this was a conscious and aware robot. And it, in part, it's because so long as all you're doing is just acting on the way that you represent, rep represent the world without recourse to the demands to continued viability, um, I think you're just a robot. But you can so, build a robot that cares about that stuff. I think that's a really good answer. Um, and to, to tie it back into the what what I said was the meta um, meta philosophical view that I that I that I said I agreed with. I I think that these sorts of questions have to be embedded into larger projects, and we have to appreciate that like what the right answer is ultimately is going to depend on how a whole bunch of things hang together. Yeah. So for example, what is life? And and that's a there's a lot of open questions that we won't really feel satisfied. We know what life is until, for example, we have a relatively agreed upon answer to the question, where did life come from? Yep. And that's a disaster. Like, how do you, how do you conduct experiments about what was happening on the planet earth 5 billion years ago or, or whatever, you know, uh, how would you, how would you gain data about those early conditions? How, um, but one thing, one thing that's interesting about that literature is that uh, the literature about abiogenesis is mm -hmm. that there's two main schools of thought about how you would go about even trying to answer that question about where life comes from. Uh, one school of thought is that you, you try to come up with a theory whereby reproduction happens. You might call this a reproduction first approach to the problem of abiogenesis. Another school of thought is metabolism first. Mm -hmm. So you try to tell a story about how metabolism came to be. And then later on, you, you, you tack uh, representation, uh, not rep reproduction onto that. And the, the history of this is that mostly people go to the re reproduction first view in, in part because it's just easier to formalize. It's way easier to define what reproduction might be. You could give a formal definition of copying quite easily but what the heck yeah. is a metabolism something about energy and chemicals and, and homeostasis but how do you define those uh those component things um anyway i just bring this up to say that like you know it suppose in the next few decades we actually get a pretty decent lead that mm -hmm. tells us that oh yeah it, it actually what had to be a metabolism first thing and we get some decent progress on what even is a metabolism then we might be in a better position to answer this question about Roombas because now we could say, well, like, well, does a Roomba have a metabolism? Mm -hmm. it, it, there's energy and it replenishes its energy, but maybe it turns out there's a lot of wrinkles to what counts as a, a metabolism and Roomba just doesn't cut it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's to just wave my hands in a direction of 
where we might, you know, be comfortable, but, but surely simply looking at our intuitions about how to use these words, most of which are semi-technical anyway, would be a giant waste of time. It ultimately has to, has to uh, be conciliate with vast swaths of scientific theory, all of which is super uh, underdeveloped. Nonetheless, let's talk more about consciousness, despite our vast ignorance. Um, uh, So I had earlier uh, in our conversation was talking about atomism and the lack of intrinsicness. And and there's all sorts of ways in which uh, that's obviously relevant to consciousness discussions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to see uh, how much you thought that that was something you, you could agree with. You know, so one way of casting what's going on in a lot of consciousness discussions is that we we hyper focus on a specific example, like seeing red. And there seems to be this presumption, sometimes not often stated, that red is atomic. Mm -hmm. For some people, you you, you dig into it a little bit, you, you could get this you get some kind of explicit statement of this. So, you know, very often they'll talk about this, these sorts of cases, knowing what it's like to see red in terms of how hard it is to communicate. It couldn't be book knowledge. You couldn't read about it. And if you think through those examples and and ask like, well, what's going on there? Well, it, it seems to me at least that red is operating as a good example because it's presumed that red is atomic. Mm-hmm. If red wasn't atomic, like for example, having red and white stripes, right? It, 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 if instead of, does Mary know what it's like to see red? We ask, does Mary know what it's like to see the Icelandic flag? I've got the, that's the flag of Iceland back there. <laughs> you know, so you set the story up like this. So Mary's never seen the Icelandic flag before, but she's seen, she's seen crosses before she's seen red things before and white things and blue things. And she's seen rectangles and she's seen stripes. Could she, based on what you tell her, what she reads in books, could she know what it's like ahead of time to see the flag of Iceland? And the answer I think for many people is obviously yes. Because the flag of Iceland is not atomic. It, mm-hmm. It's complex. It's relational. And you can assemble the complexes pre-experientially. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's other experiences you have to have. No one ever describes the Mary case as a being who's had zero experiences. Yep. Um, so it seems to all revolve around atomicity, which itself might be questionable mm-hmm. on multiple fronts. You know, one is this idea the the idea that the the mind is constructed the way Hume says that you've got simple ideas and complex ideas that might be totally wrong there might be no simple ideas mm-hmm. it might just be this big Quinean web of of things related to other things um anyway I wanted to run this by you in part because a lot of meditative practice looks like what you're doing is you're drilling down into experiences that on the face of it might seem simple and homogenous, you know, like the sensation of breath at at the tip of your nose there. I've been through entire meditations in which it's just focusing on that one sensation and appreciating 
it's a fuck ton of sensations. Yep. And it's not just in the tip of your nose. You're aware of all sorts of things all over your body. And, and, it, and then even the stuff that you're focusing on on the tip of the nose, there's further decompositions. Some of it has to do with vibration. Some of it has to do with temperature. Um, and it might be the case that for all experiences, there's always further drilling down you could do and further complexities with no bottom. There's no yeah. set of, of experiential elements um, for which you could run a Mary case, you know, and the stuff about inverted spectra uh, is pretty much the same sort of thing that um, the really, the only way it could be conceivable that what it's like for you to see red is like, what I, when I see green and vice versa is if those qualia are non-relational. Mm -hmm. Once you allow that they're relationally constituted, that there's a web of other kinds of experiences that you're, what it's like for you to see red is related via various similarities to what it's like to see orange, what it's like to see yellow. Then you've got a structure and if the structure is asymmetrical, then there's no remapping onto itself. There's a unique, correct way to map the qualia onto the brain, for example, uh, if it's an asymmetrical structure. Mm -hmm. um, and then you don't get qualia inversions. So anyway, you know, it seems to me that a lot of the problems all come from a few bad assumptions. One of the main ones being that there are atomic experiences or atomic. Yeah non-relational, non-decomposable foundations. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I come pretty close to agreeing with just about everything you just said. And I think one of the things that motivates my neuro yogacara stuff in the context of consciousness is trying to highlight both how weird conscious experience is and how it's weird in ways that philosophers don't tend to highlight. So first bit of that, which you alluded to and which I think is very important is that we almost never have experiences of a particular abstracted away from everything else that's going on. There's always, when you're sitting in a room looking at a white wall with a blue spot on it, there's the contrast between that particular white and that particular blue. There's the feeling of your butt on the chair. There's the continual feeling of what's going on as you breathe in and you breathe out. There's whatever patterns of hunger and thirst you might have, the patterns of dryness that might be sitting in your mouth, like all that stuff is happening together. And it all comes, at least from my perspective, as a bundle. And as we start to try to look at an everyday experience like that and extract one bit of it, what we have to do is rely on patterns of conceptualization, which are tied up with assumptions about which other members of the class of all of our previous experiences hang together. 
and which of them ought to be unified under a single monadic term. And if we start asking, what does it mean to see blue? What we're doing is we're clustering a bunch of different experiences together. We're saying that there's a single term that applies to all of them. And we're doing that in a way that suggests that that's picking out a real fundamental feature of the world. Now, I do think, and this is the other side of the meditative thing, that it's possible to engage in an immersive awareness of a particular kind of color experience. These are what get called in um, Buddha Gosa's work, uh, Kasana meditations, where what you attempt to do is to immerse yourself in a particular, say, shade of blue, and you get it to structure and organize everything that's going on in your current awareness by staring at it for a really long period of time, by closing your eyes and trying to hold on to that particularity, and by trying to get it to have an expansive structure in your awareness. If there's anything that would count, and I don't think it does, as an experience of what it's like to see blue, it's an experience that's deep in that kind of practice where you don't have anything else going on. All you have is that immersive awareness of blue. And from that perspective, you can now ask, what's going on there? Well, it's a particularity. And it's unlike any of the things that you walk around the world saying, there's a blue thing, there's a blue thing. Those two blue things are different blues, but they're both blue. All of that stuff is bringing in so much other complexity that just often gets dropped out of the discussion. And I think that once we let go of the sense that we know how to generalize from past experiences to properties that are present in the world independently with their own existence that we could either have knowledge of or lack knowledge of, we're already in the space where we're gonna generate weird merry problems. But if we're being super honest, every moment of experience is a new kind of experience. And it's a new kind of experience because it's mashing together new kinds of phenomenon, new kinds of demand states, and how we wanna cluster them and organize them and say how they're related to one another. That's conceptualizing strategy, but it's not getting at anything that's fundamental. Um, all it's getting at is patterns that are unfolding and the change of experiences. That's super rich stuff. And you know, I'm, I'm tempted to go deeper into that or shift gears because uh, we're, we're entering into our last half hour. I think we're going to go with the gear shifting thing and, and hope uh, to get you back for a follow-up uh, maybe in a, in a few months or something like that. Because, you know... It, if I were to go deeper into that, I want to press you about, for example, stuff about the relative contributions of conceptual and non-conceptual yeah. stuff. And, and is it really true that it's always a different experience? I, I think it's important to say that lots of times it's not rich at all. It's even though there are these complexities in our past or underneath the surface, lots of times it's just this really vanilla thing like blue without any specificity at all. But what I want to, because I'm worried about time, one thing I want to uh, shift gears abruptly to is the fact value distinction, in mm -hmm. part because uh, you might recall 
some day drinking we did in 2015 at a dive bar. We were yelling at each other about the fact value distinction. And at the time, I was really puzzled by what you were presenting as kind of a Spinozistic way of being a moral realist. And I was pushing for some kind of nihilism or something like that, that I don't think I really believe much anymore. I don't know what I think anymore about these issues, but I had an experience recently listening to a podcast appearance of yours on the enter the void pod podcast, Mm -hmm. where I feel like things really clicked about your view on this. And so I want to run it by you and get you to say some more about it. So if I, if I'm recalling correctly, um, when you were on the enter the void pod, there was a discussion and I'm probably mangling this, but hopefully it's interesting anyway, there is a discussion along the lines of why take the various metaphysical or, or epistemological uh, claims from Yogacara as accurate? And your answer was something along the lines of because of a certain axiological condition waiting in our future, if we adopt, if we adopt the, these facts or truths or if we accept these as facts or accept them as truths then we're going to wind up in this um optimal state because that state is optimal this is what we ought to believe and if that's what you ought to believe then i mean that's pretty much what the truth is is that what you ought to believe um and while one might question that, there's all sorts of different places one can uh, raise issues for that. At least at that moment, I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's pretty reasonable. That seems defensible. Not, I'm still not sure I believe it. So I just wanted to mainly check in with you and see, like, is that, like, is that something that you would agree with? That ultimately that, you know, the, the facts and the values hang together and we accept these things as fact because we wind up in this uh, valuable state of affairs? Yeah, I mean, I would tweak that just a little bit, and this might be a change in the way that I'm thinking about things, moving further away from the Spinoza stuff and maybe towards something that might be more at home in a Buddhist framework. I think that what is important is getting rid of the distortions and illusions that stand in the way of us being um, compassionate, caring, loving, collectively active beings. And part of the reason for that is that we're densely and deeply social animals. And because we're densely and deeply social animals, we have needs and interests that are always unnecessarily tied up with the needs and interests of other people. And so long as we're those kinds of beings, the question is always going to be, are the ways that we're using different kinds of conceptualizations of the world contributing to collective flourishing or are they contributing to our eminent downfall as a species? Most of the ones that we deploy these days are pushing us towards a hellscape. And I 
think that that's something that's really worth noting and keeping in mind. And the reason that I like the Buddhist frameworks is that they are nudging us towards a recognition that the world that we're building is a hellscape, as well as a recognition that we can work to do better. How do you, um, so let's suppose someone accepts that basic picture, the the one that we would describe as, you got to, you got to get your practices in line with something that will promote the general good. Yeah. So someone could agree to that. And still say, well, why Buddhism? Or why this specific flavor of Buddhism? Yeah. Because, um, you know, a utilitarian might agree with this. Utilitarian might say, like, look, we got to yeah. maximize the ratio of pleasure over pain for the society at large. But the Buddhist is saying something like, well, get rid of pleasure. We got to ditch the suffering. Um, there's lots of different ways of living up to that particular picture. How do you know this one is or you know how do you know you made the right choice bryce why aren't you why aren't you a catholic they've got roughly this picture too yeah i mean so one tiny thing buddhists have loads of space for joy and the buddha says that his practices are ones that conduce to reliable and stable experiences of joy And I think that's an important part of the story. But what I would say is that when we look at a lot of other frameworks, and this is precisely the reason that I angle towards Buddhist stuff, what we find is intrinsic teleology that doesn't actually get redeemed in any interesting way. It requires that there be designer or design that's intrinsic to the structure of the world, And I just don't think there is any such thing. I think there's all sorts of causal activity that have got us where we are. There are activities and opportunities that we can take up from where we stand. And the question for me is always, given where I stand now, what can I do to make things better? Or what can I do to make things worse? I think we often get habituated into situations where the actions we choose are ones that make things worse. And I think that what the Buddhist perspective aims to do is to make us more aware of what's happening at a particular point in time, how it's been structured and shaped by history and by contextual factors, and what opportunities we have for acting given where we stand. That's maybe not unique to global traditions that look at things in this way, but it is something that I think is distinctively Buddhist. And I think that to the extent that I want to hold on to the bits of a naturalistic worldview that I really want to hold on to, um, that the world is organized and structured by causes, that those causes are ones that lead us to experience a world that's shaped by our evolutionary history and by our developmental contexts, by our ecological situation, by our histories of uh, colonialism 
and our histories of managing and shaping people into different spaces. spaces. I think that the Buddhist perspective gives us a way of thinking about how all those things inflect our awareness and what it might take to navigate our situation, to let go of some of those bad traditions effects. So in, in some sense, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir. Like I'm predisposed to agree with what you just said. Um, but there are certain skeptical worries that I'm still kind of haunted by. And, yeah. um, and I'd like to hear your reactions to them. One of the skeptical worries is one I picked up when I was an undergrad. I've been interested in meditation since like high school. Uh, you know, I was like reading Aleister Crowley and stuff. And yep. so I got into it. Um, and when I was an undergrad at University of Illinois, I took a class on Buddhism. And um, I thought what I was going to get out of this class was information about meditation, which I conceived of as, as a way to trip without drugs. What yeah. I got instead was something I was initially pretty disappointed with. But a few years later, it kind of clicked for me as like, oh, that's a pretty interesting point of view. And the point of view expressed by this professor who I cannot figure out who it was like, this is early nineties. I, I don't have any old notebooks. I don't know who this professor was, but the way he taught the class was as the history of Buddhism as a kind of literature that grew out of certain, uh, certain moments in um, India, China, other areas, histories in which you had, a middle, like kind of a middle class emerge. Mm -hmm. And so you had a market for a certain kind of literature. That was really deflationary. And as someone who thought they were going to learn how to just like make LSD in their own brain, I was super disappointed. But that very kind of like cynical, almost debunking argument about this stuff really you know, stuck with me as, is kind of a worry, like, well, maybe this is just like the way to think about these sutras is yeah. like parallel to what we see, like from Tony Robbins or, uh, or Joel Osteen. It's just like a horseshit designed to sell books, um, and, and increase church attendance. Another source of skepticism um, got on my radar much more recently, but it's a problem many people are discussing and have discussed for a long time, which is the bad teacher, that there's yep. lots of cases of established gurus, established masters that demonstrably, like as far as anyone can really tell from a third person point of view, they yep. are enlightened, but they're also assholes. Yep. Maybe some of them are terrible sexual predators. Um, so if, if you're coming at this thinking that this is the road to goodness or some, some kind of desired state, isn't there a lot of counter evidence that you've, you've chosen the, the, the correct path? If even people who clearly are enlightened also clearly are pieces of shit, yeah. like what, what do you do? I mean, I guess. So one thing that I would say, and this, this doesn't necessarily help um, because it brings along its own complexities, but for at least the Yogacara philosophers, 
even the people they pick out as masters um, in a really rich sense, Basavandu and Asanga, these aren't people who are seen as enlightened. They're not people who are seen as having attained that, whatever that pinnacle of existence is. They're people who are nice role models because they engage in deeply compassionate patterns of behavior. But like at the end of the day, what matters is how this stuff is transforming activity and how it's opening up compassionate activities. And I think the thing that I would say is that there's absolutely no necessary connection between taking up a Buddhist orientation and getting at the truth. I think that to the extent that you engage in some of these kinds of discussion and some of these kinds of practices, you can start to get glimpses of why parts of them make sense. And you can start to use them with the aim of trying to cultivate and transform your awareness. Sometimes it's gonna be super useful to, um, for example, um, grab a book on stoicism that's to your left because it offers some important insights that aren't present in the Buddhist tradition. Sometimes it's gonna make sense to look to some of the cultivational stuff that Spinoza is talking about because it's not stuff that's actually being showing up in the, that historical tradition. But for me, the main idea is that this kind of approach sees philosophy as a practice of cultivating a way of living and being in the world. And that's something that I think has been a rich and important aspect of lots of philosophical traditions, but it's fallen out of favor um, maybe coming back a little bit, but you read the ancient Stoics, you read the ancient Epicureans, they're doing lifecraft stuff in exactly the same way. And they see that just having a propositional understanding of the world isn't worth much of a thing at all if you can't embody that and live it. And yeah. when we talk about those folks who are doing really awful things and being really awful people, I think the thing to notice is that they might have high level knowledge and high level understanding, but if they're not embodying it, they aren't actually the people that they claim to be. Um, and I think that the critical strand that runs through Buddhism is always recognizing that testimony, that things that show up in texts, like they're useful, they're tools, but treating them as undeniable authority is just reifying things in a really problematic way. That doesn't mean, and this is the other last point, that people who live as Buddhists recognize that. Um, in fact, lots of people who live as Buddhists see the um, particular rituals and the particular teachings and whatever else as absolutely essential. Sometimes that's a social control strategy Sometimes it's a social liberation strategy and looking at it from inside probably isn't going to tell you which it's doing. So, um, you know, one thing that comes to my mind in, in, in thinking about these points is Evan Thompson's criticism of the way 
different pieces of Buddhism get cherry picked and yeah. integrated into certain Western capitalistic sorts of structures. Um, and uh, which, you know, the, the, certainly it's possible that there's, there's a danger there and, and, and arguably it's actual that there's lots of danger there. Um, but on the other hand, I, you know, I, I think that, um, the way I would hear what you were saying, uh, uh, is that Buddhism has to be open. If it's going to be any good, it's got to be open to the fact that it's not perfect. Uh, and, and as a practitioner, one needs to be open to the possibility that maybe you need to supplement it with not Buddhism, throw in some stoicism. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, there's a way of hearing the Evan Thompson stuff by saying that, look, there's these traditions, you can't take these traditions apart. You can't take pieces out of them. You can't break the whole into pieces and pick and choose. Uh, and then what you're saying is in some opposition to Evan's critique that in some sense, you're saying you can, or, and you should, you should look at, you know, look at it with a critical eye. Um, and we, we didn't specifically mention stuff about the dark side of meditation, which is a slightly yeah. different problem than the problem of the bad teachers, the teachers who do bad things. Um, yeah. But there's this very interesting issue about like, so if you're practicing meditation in a certain way, do you end up with a relationship to your emotions that's actually yeah, yeah, yeah. not desirable? You become detached in ways that uh, you, you yeah. now feel like you're less alive or less socially engaged. Um, so, uh, yeah, I wonder if you could say some things about... Um, whether you worry that you're now open to the Evan Thompson type critique that you are participating in this Western picking and choosing uh, project or whether, so, you know, you're, yeah. you're doing something worth doing. So, so I want to, I want to be super clear here that I'm not saying we should strip all of this stuff of its history and strip it of its contextual phenomena. When I I say that we need something that's more cosmopolitan in its orientation, given our current situation in the world, I take it that that bit of the story is, in many respects, a similar sort of thing to the thing that Thompson's pointing to at the end of why I'm not a Buddhist. On the other side, and this will maybe help to make it clear, I think that when we think about the so-called dark side of meditation, one of the things that we see is that part of what leads people into bad meditative states, um, states that yield um, experiences that look a lot like depersonalization and derealization, states that can sometimes drift over into psychoses but in any case, states that are deeply socially uncomfortable. One of the things that gets clear is that the kinds of people who navigate those negative experiences well are people who are embedded in a practice community 
where they've got support from other people who have gone through those kinds of things and where they've got structures and organization that allow them to, in a rich sense, de-essentialize those negative experiences and supplement them with forward-looking and positive sorts of attitudes. And so one of the things that I always highlight when I give talks on meditation type stuff is that it's not, at least within the Yogacara tradition, ever a story about just breaking things down. It's always a story about breaking down and building up. And the cultivation of those attitudes of bodhicitta, the cultivation of forms of selflessness in the ethical sense, and the cultivation of the immeasurable states, the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, um, uh, care, uh, sympathetic joy, and equanimity is always operating alongside and in parallel to those letting goes of things. And that I think is the reason why we need to really, when we're talking about enacting selflessness, keep in view both dimensions, both the recognition that I'm not an essentially existing thing and the orientation that builds that practical orientation of um, compassion and care and concern and all of that other stuff. And if you're not doing both things at the same time, you're probably going to push yourself into situations that are detached. And those forms of detachment, because they're not being supplemented with other orientations, can be really distressing. And if you're not part of a community that can help you navigate that distress, it's probably going to get a whole lot worse. And if you're just some dude who's like, well, I'm going to go do a 10-day Vipassana retreat, never done any meditating before, I'm just going to go sit there and see what happens, and you end up in a weird, deeply uncomfortable state on the other side, it's probably not too surprising. Um, I mean, when I've done meditation retreats, I've definitely had experiences that pushed me into weird spaces. And it was only by having the corresponding skills for de-reifying some of those weird experiences for recognizing that this is just a weird thing that my embodied brain is producing that I was able to swim through that in a productive way because you could easily slip into some of those experiences being pervasive and ugly and not things that you want to sit in. Absolutely fascinating stuff. So we're, um, we're down to our last few minutes. Um, is there anything from the, the, that you foresee for the neuro Yogacara project that we haven't touched on in some way today? Is it like a big chunk that we didn't get into at all? I feel like we've hit a lot of it. The bit that I think is really important and we came at it in a couple of ways, but I just want to highlight is that I think the picture inverts the kind of story that the folks who get called an activist or that take an active perspectives tend to highlight. So I tend to think of this as a story about how experience is enacted and it's enacted by all sorts of causes and conditions. Some of them are physiological, but some of them are facts about your ecology. 
um, facts about the history of colonialism and domination. And all of that stuff is constantly bringing us into the kind of awareness that we have at any point in time. And our activity is a little modulator on the end of that. It's a way of trying to nudge things around in better directions and to accumulate better strategies for acting so that future encounters look a little bit different. But much of what's going on here is not under the control of an autonomous organism. It's a world of experience that's been built up and organized by sedimented layers of reality and by what the Buddhists frame as karma. Um, it's karma is um, within this kind of picture, the effects of intentional actions. And the thing that I highlight is that it's not just my intentional actions that I habituate in accordance with. It's the intentional actions of the people who built my environment, the intentional actions of the people who settled this space of the ways that they've organized my encounters with the world. And all of that leads me to encounter a world that's structured and saturated with meaningful possibilities, but only because I'm carrying that entire history with me. So if we're plugging in a sense to 4E cognition, you care more about embedded and extended stuff than, than um, inactive and, and embodied stuff. stuff. But my take on the embodied stuff is uh, physiological regulation. Um, and it's really about the ways that ongoing demands on viability are structuring and organizing our awareness of the world and the way that, um, you know, things like the idea of allostasis, which lies right at the core of my picture, um, was developed looking at what happens to people who are exposed to continual and pervasive stress in their environment. And essentially what happens is the body becomes calibrated to expect that the world is gonna be stressful. And unsurprisingly, those patterns of calibration have massively detrimental effects on things like hearts and lungs and peripheral organs. And all of that stuff is shaping what's going on at any point in time because high levels of anticipated stress are also shaping cognition. And when you start to see all of that stuff, understanding it requires looking to the physiology. So I think the story has to be embodied. It has to be socially embedded. And yeah. I think it has to bleed across the boundaries of, of brain, body, and world. So when you describe your view as inverting what the inactivists are talking about, I'm guessing you might have some inactivists more in mind than others. So when I think of, for example, uh, Evan Thompson, he's got this recent-ish paper of looking at the, the claim that meditation puts you into a state of non-conceptual yeah, yeah, yeah. awareness. I, I forgot the title of the paper, but it's an excellent paper. And it really gets deep into the philosophy of mind and cognitive science of what concepts are and relates it to these Buddhist literatures about what conceptual yep. versus non-conceptual awareness is supposed to be. And towards the end of the paper, he brings in what he calls an inactive analysis. Um, but it, it sounds to me like what you're talking about. And, and what I would say is it seems like Evan's just using inactive as kind of code for the whole 
the whole host of things you get from 4e cognition so uh, so let me put a really fine point on the difference and this is something i'm drawing on arguments from sonam katru about and it's something that we're trying to think through a bunch together but within the inactive framing of things it's the autonomous organ organism that's navigating these challenges that is most salient and what we need is a story about how that autonomous organism makes sense of the environmental contingencies that it's embedded within that requires i think too rich of a notion of selfhood and the way that i want to tell the story is that that organism as well as its environment are called into existence by those same histories and the opportunities for action are far more limited they're always there but to the extent that we want to tell a story about mentality we want to tell a story about how it's been enacted rather than how an organism is enacting um a, a world through its engagements and there's definitely deep affinities and its ways of highlighting different aspects of the story but i want to highlight the role of those karmic histories in calling into existence awareness and i want that to be the absolute center of the story where it's not just my my intentional actions which i think the inactivist framing takes on easily but the intentional actions of my ancestors and the people i'm not even related to that built my world and those patterns of colonization and oppression all of which structure this space super super deep stuff uh we are i can't believe we burned up 3 hours it feels like either. three minutes. Uh, I could I could definitely talk to you about this stuff for many 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 hours. Hopefully, we do. Absolutely. Before I press the button, I'm going to give you the last word. I don't know if I have a last word. I mean, I guess the main thing that I want to say is that reading more deeply into our history. and the complexities of our history is something that's always worth doing and it always re- reveals really intriguing possibilities and what you'll find is often unclear until you do it as an excellent last word so don't go away i want to you know say goodbye to you off the air but uh thanks for an awesome discussion that was really super cool yeah and thanks for having me this was super fun i had a blast thank you for listening to space time mind For more info about today's episode, as well as info about our video series and other supplements, check out our website at spacetimemind.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your comments on Twitter at spacetimemind99 or on our blog at spacetimemind.com. And please rate us on iTunes to help spread the word. Until next time, this is Pete Mandick saying,